And here comes the bride. The arrival of Prince Charles at St. Paul's Cathedral. They got him to the church on time. It's a bright summer day in 1981. You will be hearing Trumpet Voluntary by Jeremiah Clark as Lady Diana Spencer makes her way down the aisle to join her husband-to-be in just a few moments, the Prince of Wales. Cameras catch Diana's shy glance at her future husband. She's only 20 years old, and there's something about her that's just so captivating. She breathes fresh life into the monarchy and, seemingly, its 31-year-old successor. This young woman will become one of the best-known figures of our time. During their very public courtship, it would seem the future king found his future queen. This in the past, but there was a kind of auditioning for this job. As Tina Brown pointed out at one point, he decided that she was right for the job and then slowly, probably began to fall in love with her as well, wouldn't you say? I think it did rather happen in that order. I think her qualifications were wonderful. And then she seemed to get more glamorous before his eyes. And now, after much ado, the moment the entire world's been waiting for is finally upon them. Here comes the bride. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Let's be honest, we all know how this love story ends. I, Charles Philip Arthur George, take thee, Diana Francis. It's one of the most famous, ill-fated marriages of modern times. To my wedded wife, Hi, Diana Francis. Take thee. It dramatically changed the royal family, hugely harmed Charles's reputation, and left him the first heir to the throne to be granted a divorce in British history. Those are the headlines. But what do they tell us about Charles? Is this iconic, tragic love story still insightful, or does it actually make us understand him less? And what of Charles's other great love, Camilla? Charles, Diana and Camilla are etched on the public consciousness as the three corners of a love triangle. Diana was so popular that often Charles and Camilla were cast as the villains. But fast forward to today, the notorious other woman is now his wife and will one day be queen consort. What was it that Shakespeare once said? The course of true love never did run smooth. Charles and Diana's storybook wedding has collapsed into a royal embarrassment. He doesn't want her and she certainly doesn't want to be with him. They loathe each other. It became irretrievably broken down, us both having tried. Inevitably, we had to devote a whole episode to the juiciest, most salacious and utterly compelling chapter of the Charles story. I'm Keir Simmons and this is Born to Rule.
Episode 3. Whatever in love means. In 1971, Charles was 22 and was living his much-publicised bachelor lifestyle, going to parties, making frequent trips to the countryside and playing lots of polo. Making his first public appearance as a polo player, the young prince rides like a cowboy. In perfect coordination, lad and pony gallop goalward. One day, a close friend from university introduced Charles to her downstairs neighbour, a woman called Camilla Shand. She'd been sporadically dating his friend, Andrew Parker Bowles, but at that moment, she was single. Immediately, she and Charles hit it off. As the widely reported story goes, Camilla and Charles enjoyed the better part of 1972 together, without arising much suspicion from the ever-lurking press. And Charles was smitten. Journalist and author Tina Brown explains how there was good reason to think that they might have actually been quite well suited to each other, and she would know. Brown covered Charles's tumultuous love life, including his wedding to Diana, and stayed on the beat ever since. Camilla had this very solid, supportive, discreet, upper-class family, the Shans. She is a warm, supportive, humorous person who loves his sense of humour, which he has a strong sense of humour, Charles always has. Charles and Camilla share so many interests, that's their great strength together, that they really live the life of of upper-class aristocratic people in the shires. I mean, there's a lot of shared love of the garden and the the dogs, the horses, all of that, that stuff that they love to do together. You might think, what else is there? They sound perfect for each other. But there were a few obstacles in their way. First, Andrew Parker Bowles was really Camilla's first love. They'd met when she was just about 18 years old, and they dated on and off for years. Fatefully, in 1972... Andrew had had quite a busy year in the army, stationed in Northern Ireland and then in Cyprus, leaving Camilla alone in England and free to pursue other interests, like the Prince of Wales. But then, in early 1973, another obstacle. It was Charles's turn to be shipped off for duty. Charles reports to his new ship, HMS Minerva. He was sent to the Caribbean with the Navy, and shortly after, Andrew Parker Bowles returned from his own army tour and quickly became engaged to Camilla. Charles was 25 years old, thousands of miles from home, learning that his friend was marrying the woman he had until recently been dating. You can probably imagine how heartbroken he was. But perhaps the biggest obstacle to Charles and Camilla's romance was something that the monarchy runs into again and again. Tradition, the golden cage, the crushing weight of expectation, But this expectation is, well, listening now in 2022, you'll find it hard to believe. The royal family expected Charles to marry a virgin, an archaic demand even then in post-Summer of Love London. Well, you try finding a a virgin of 30 in upper-class England in the 1970s. You know, they were getting in short supply. In fact, finding... A virgin was a bit like looking for the Loch Ness Monster in terms of Charles's circle, so they had to go younger and younger. Despite losing Camilla to Andrew, the two remained in Charles's innermost circle. And in 1980, Charles actually sought their advice about a young woman he'd been introduced to, Lady Diana Spencer, the younger sister of another woman he'd briefly dated. Diana was considered 
ideal for Charles for many reasons. She was first eyeballed by uh, the Queen Mother as a suitable uh, partner for Charles at uh, a wedding that she went to, and she saw the young, beautiful young filly, as I'm sure she thought about <laughs> about Diana, and thought she'd be so perfect. I mean, her father, Earl Spencer, uh, was a hugely pedigreed, very grand, you know, English aristocratic family with the stately home of Althorpe. He'd been a former equerry to the Queen. Uh, you know, her grandmother was a lady-in-waiting to the Queen. I mean, they were absolutely wired into the royal family, the Spencers. And so she seemed an absolutely perfect choice because she would know and understand all the ways of what it was like to be in the royal family. She's young, she's beautiful, she's a virgin, she's well-pedigreed. She will understand how we live and she will know, you know, not to complain. <laughs> Diana and Charles dated for just six months. And in that short time, the royal family seemed quite pleased with the match. Charles had been pressured into finding a suitable wife at this point for years. When you marry, in my position, you're going to marry somebody who perhaps one day is going to become queen. And you've got to choose somebody very carefully, I think, who, who could fulfill this particular role. Because people like you, perhaps, would expect quite a lot from somebody like that. And it's got to be somebody pretty special. Charles may have been trapped by tradition, but Diana was more than a suitable blushing bride-to-be from the right kind of family. She was a young woman of her time, living in a London flat with her girlfriends and working as a nanny. She seemed real, relatable. The media responded and couldn't get enough of her. Something else Lady Diana is going to have to get used to, the fusillade of camera flashbulbs. The fact that the heir to the throne was finally settling down made for a true media maelstrom. Cameras were glued to Diana during their brief courtship, following her everywhere, even if the two were rarely photographed together. Diana later said that she and Charles only met 13 times before their wedding day. The engagement was announced by the palace on February 24th, 1981, and that same day, the new couple gave their first joint interview to mark their engagement. Do you find it a very daunting experience that uh, yesterday you were a nanny looking after children, um, now you're about to uh, marry the Prince of Wales, and, and one day you would, well, in all likelihood, be queen? It's a tremendous change for someone, if I may say, of 19 to make all of a sudden, the transition. It is, but I've had a small run-up to it all in the last six months. <laughs> And next to it's Charles and I can't go wrong. He's there with me. All seemed to be going according to plan. The media was transfixed. The royal family relieved. But then, at the end of the interview, Charles let something slip that would come to be one of the most prescient moments from their early days together. I'm amazed that she's uh, been brave enough to take me on. <laughs> then the interviewer goes on to ask... And I suppose in love. Of course. Whatever in love means. <laughs> Whatever in love means, he said. We, of course, can't know what Charles meant when he said that, but it's safe to say that it's certainly not what you'd expect to hear from a man about to get married. And when you think about it today, for some reason at the time, it didn't seem so extraordinary. But when I look back on it now, I mean, she was a child. She was 20 when she got married, 20 when she was supposed to become the wife of the 32-year-old Prince of Wales, who really was like a man of 55 in his sort of very sort of retro uh, affect, you know, um, completely different as people. 
Diana. She thought, a young, kind of inexperienced 20-year-old, that she was uh, marrying for love. And of course, Charles knew really that he was marrying uh, as an arrangement. Um, unfortunately, nobody nobody decided to tell Diana that it was an arrangement. At the point at which the two of them are married, the wedding of the century, how were they really? Well, by the time they were married, Diana had sussed out the fact that Charles had not become emotionally disengaged from Camilla. In fairness to Charles, I think he absolutely did put the Camilla relationship on hold for several years. But he was emotionally tied to her still. I mean, any woman knows when their husband's really in love with them or not. And it was quickly apparent after the engagement that Diana's husband-to-be was more in love with somebody else than he was with her. So by the time they married, Diana had a sense of doom about it, actually. And I think I'm no doubt that he did, too. Um, but they tried. I mean, the whole world was, you know, going crazy at the time. And there was a famous comment that Diana's sister said when she told her sister how she felt. Her sister said, too late Dutch, which was her nickname for too late Dutch. Your face is on the tea towels now. There's no going back. And there wasn't. I mean, they did it and they made an effort. They tried. Uh, but they were so incompatible, it was just not ever going to work. She wanted to have a real a real marriage. And Charles, I think, deep down, always thought he'd be able to have a mistress if he wanted. All the other male members of the royal family had and did. And for him, it was like, well, why can't we just live this way? And Diana just wasn't going to play the game. Diana, a force of nature. At first, regarded by the royal family as a traditional choice, but apparently not prepared to accept some of those old palace traditions like adultery. Of course, she later admitted to her own infidelity. But we'll get to that a little bit later. It didn't take long for this couple to produce an heir. Her Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, has given birth to a baby son. God save Queen! <laughs> Diana gave birth to her first son, William, just 11 months after their wedding, on June 21st, 1982. Harry followed soon after, in September of 1984. Years later, Diana would describe this moment as a turning point in the marriage. Charles and I, we were very, very close to each other six weeks before Harry was born, closest we've ever, ever been and ever will be. And then suddenly, as Harry was born, it just went bang, our marriage. At this point, it's been reported Camilla and her husband, Andrew Parker Bowles, lived largely separate lives. She left alone in their country house all week while Andrew worked in the city. And according to Tina Brown's new book, The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil, it was around this time that Camilla and Charles likely became romantically involved again, laying the groundwork for what would befall both their marriages. It's no revelation for me to tell you that Diana felt as though she was never really alone in her marriage with Charles. But to really try and understand what the experience was like for her, we turn to someone who knew Charles and Diana better than most, because he worked for the royal family. My name is Ken Worf, um, a former Metropolitan Police officer, joined in those halcyon days of the 60s. Ken Worf is a well-known name in the UK. He's published two books about his time working for Diana. 
Ken's other claim to fame was being sent to stop the Beatles' unauthorised rooftop concert of Let It Be in 1969, their final public performance, as it turned out. So you could say he had some limited experience with high-profile folks, but he'd never had a job like this. By a sheer fluke of luck, I think, I was asked by the Queen's police officer if I was interested in a job with royalty protection, looking after the young princes William and Harry. And I said, yeah, it seems a reasonable job to me. And um, there I began. And my first ever meeting with Diana was at Sandringham House in Norfolk. You know, I was a bit nervous at the prospect of meeting royalty. I think everybody is at the first time. One thing that I noted very quickly was how normal this woman was because I was shown in by a very attentive butler. And Diana said, oh, she said, I don't envy you, Ken, looking after my two boys. They can be a bloody nuisance. And William was attempting to play the piano very badly. Ken joined the protection team in 1987, right as things were getting very bad indeed for Charles and Diana. At this point, Charles had started up his romantic relationship with Camilla again. Diana knew and was having an affair of her own with a man named James Hewitt. Diana said, look, I think it's important for you to know just what the relationship is that I have with my husband and if you don't already know, the very existence of, of Camilla Parker Bowles and also James Hewitt. Well, it was a bit of a landslide for me, but... but as She told so, you all that. She but, told but, you all absolutely, about Absolutely, but, but as it so happened, I knew about that anyway because it was part of my briefing. But to actually hear it, as they say, directly from the horse's mouth... Ken was surprised by how candid Diana was with him. He says she told him that past princes historically always had mistresses and she was sure it would all get back to normal. But it didn't, and things between them continued to deteriorate until one fateful party in 1989. This was a birthday party of Camilla's sister, Annabelle Elliot. And ordinarily, a visit like that of Charles and Diana would have been the responsibility of my colleague, who was the prince's detective, to uh, take them to this particular engagement. For some reason, he couldn't make it and ask me to uh, go on this visit. From the journey leaving Kensington Palace, I could see Diana was very unhappy. Um, and then he began to think, well, if you're so unhappy, why are you going anyway? And we arrived at this party, and everybody at the party was friends of Camilla. There were very few, if any, what I would say, good friends of Diana. And when she arrived, it was like freezing a, a shot in a movie. The people's faces clearly... I gained the impression we're not actually expecting Diana to be there. And this was a convenient time for me to escape uh, to the kitchen, which is what I normally did, where there's guaranteed some food, etc. Um, but my peace was short-lived because within about an hour, I heard Diana's voice calling me. And she said, I can't find my husband, Ken. Um, I want you to help me find him. I said, you think this is a good idea? She said, yes, that is. I said, okay. I couldn't let her down. But I didn't quite know what I was going to find. But soon thereafter, there in the what looked like the basement, um, was Camilla and Charles sat on a sofa talking. What happens next is widely held as fact. Diana confronted Camilla. She even said so herself in a taped account recorded for biographer Andrew Morton and called this moment, quote, one of the bravest of her entire marriage. Diana said what happened took place in private with just her and Camilla. But Ken, he claims he was there with Diana 
and heard what she said. Diana had this sort of real energy and suddenly went across to Camilla and said, uh, look, please don't treat me like an idiot. I know exactly, you know, what's happening and what's going on. I have done all my life. That sort of sentence, and it must have been doubly embarrassing, for certainly for Charles and Camilla. I'm not certain about Diana. I, I, you know, she was there on a mission. Soon thereafter, we left, we turned back to Kensington Palace. Again, no words were said in the car. But I sensed that was, if there was any chance prior to that moment of any reconciliation being arranged or happening, this had destroyed it. After that confrontation, things started shifting for Charles, Diana and Camilla. And what followed were some of the most difficult years of their lives. First, in 1992, biographer Andrew Morton published a book about Diana that included devastating details of the dissolution of her and Charles's marriage. To many, it appeared the author had sources on the inside. Rumours flew that Diana herself had cooperated with the book. Rumours Morton confirmed after her death. Then, something called the Camillagate tapes came out. These were exactly as scandalous as they sound. The recorded 1989 phone call between Camilla and Charles was eventually made public in 1993. We don't know where the tapes came from or how they were recorded, but we do know they're about six minutes long and feature content that's difficult to listen to. We have always been interested in the royals' private lives, but goodness me, this was as private as it gets. The tapes are a bit scratchy and hard to hear, but I think you'll get the gist of it. These are two lovers giggling together on a call, with Camilla affectionately teasing Charles about taking up residence in her clothing, while Charles, well, you heard what he said. Of course, the inevitable parodies commenced. Therefore, I have come to a most agonizing decision. As of this evening at seven o'clock, I hereby renounce my claim to the throne of England so that I may be free to live as a tampon in the trousers of the woman I love. The media were already a kind of modern royal court, but now became more like a marital courtroom. The paparazzi went to crazy lengths to capture photos of Charles and Diana, following and analysing their every move. And it went on for years. But the prince and the princess also stirred up their own drama. They both gave interviews that would go down in infamy. First, Charles in 1994. Charles gave his famous interview in the early 90s with Dimbleby on ITN, where he talked about how he had been uh, unfaithful to Diana with Camilla. Did you try to be faithful and honourable to your wife when you took on the vow of marriage? Yes, absolutely. And you were? Yes until it became irretrievably broken down. Us both having tried. I mean, it was a disaster. People went absolutely crazy, you know, and the uproar was dreadful for him. According to Tina's book, Charles's parents were mortified at how naively open Charles had been in the interview. The story goes that the Queen sighed and said, so it's come to this. Then, of course, Diana's famous sit-down interview with Martin Bashir uh, on, on the BBC, where she did all of those famous, famous things. Well, there were three of us in this marriage. 
so it was a bit crowded. I mean, it was a complete disaster that, that has reverberations to this day. We should mention there is controversy surrounding this interview and how it was obtained. And in 2021, years after Diana's passing, Martin Bashir and the BBC apologised. But Diana said what she said. And according to Tina's book, Diana told friends she was pleased with the way the interview went. Needless to say, both interviews were blockbusters. But it was Diana's side of the story that took hold. Diana had become a huge star, one that eclipsed the sheen of the royal crown. She essentially became her own brand that lived far outside the royal family's orbit. The media frenzy over her and Charles's marital problems had sucked up all the air in the room. No one talked about the royal family without talking about Charles and Di. And according to polls at the time, Diana was even more popular than the Queen. Anyone in the royal family is supposed to serve the monarchy, to support the monarchy, to uh, essentially be serving the sovereign. They're not supposed to have their own independent sort of star power base. So that was very threatening that happened with Diana. She created a whole other power base of her own, which was bigger, really, in a sense, than Her Royal Highness's title, as it were. Ken says he thought Charles felt the sting of Diana's stardom. The two would often be met by screaming crowds, but they weren't there for him. They were there for Diana. This jealousy issue here that surrounded all that Diana did need not have been the case. And you have to ask why, why this was a problem for him. Um, because Diana didn't openly want to steal his thunder. I mean, on the contrary, I mean, I, I remember a, a number of occasions where she would openly offer to be with him in a variety of different things, if only to be seen as a united front and to generally offer some sort of help. But he would ignore it and throw it to one side because he knew that if I do that, then it, it's no longer me. It's actually all about her. And this was a problem for him. So, you know, it was never, ever going to work. And that wasn't Diana's fault. Things got so messy that eventually the Queen herself had to publicly intervene. In December 1995, it was reported that she had actually written to Charles and Diana asking them to get divorced. Charles was in favour of the idea, but it took Diana about two months to release a statement saying that she would agree to finally end the marriage. In agreeing to the divorce that she didn't want, Diana tacked on a list of demands. She wants to continue to be involved in all decisions relating to her two children. She wants to retain a title and likes Diana, Princess of Wales. During the year after the divorce, things honestly seemed to be looking up for both of them. Diana was linked to a smattering of dashing and successful men, and her style transformation made her an icon to this day. As for Charles, he and Camilla continued their relationship, but still not openly. Even though Camilla and Andrew had finalised their divorce in January of 1995. And then, on August 31st, 1997, the world stopped. It says Princess Diana has died. Sky At just 36 says, years old, Diana died in a car crash in a tunnel in Paris. She'd been in the car with her romantic partner, Dodie Fayed, the driver, Henri Paul, and bodyguard, Trevor Rhys-Jones. They'd been pursued by paparazzi in the minutes before the accident. Only Rhys-Jones survived. It's 4 a.m. The chase is over, and so is the life of the most photographed woman in the world. 
Britain is waking up to a hard new reality, life without Princess Diana, and it hurts. The public outpouring of grief was profound. She was a saint. It's very upsetting. <laughs> Flowers piled up in front of Kensington Palace, creating mountains that extended 30 feet out from the palace gates. The royal family found itself in shock, not only at Diana's death, but at the enormity of the public's mourning. But then the public's grief turned to anger at the monarchy itself. Many felt hurt by the silence emanating from the royal family in the wake of Diana's death. Days later, the Queen returned to London from Balmoral Castle to address the people. For the first time in her life, the Queen gave a speech about the passing of a member of the royal family. I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others. The Queen bowed to public demands and went even further by lowering the flag at Buckingham Palace to half-mast, an unprecedented move. The monarchy is a massively significant institution and how it's evolved over the last 20 years since the death of Diana is, to me, a very interesting historical moment for the monarchy, you know, because it was shaken and it was uh, turned upside down, essentially, by the whole turbulence of the breakdown of Charles and Diana's marriage. Elizabeth II had never seen the public sort of turn in the way that they turned at that moment and had to be placated, which she did. So then the next 20 years was all about how were they going to rectify that. So this keeps coming back for Charles. And I don't think till the day he dies, he'll, he'll really ever be free of, of the ghost of Diana. There are those who criticise the obsessive coverage of the royals' personal lives. Certainly, parts of the media were blamed after Princess Diana died. But is it important to know these things about our future ruler? Should we know about his flaws, like the jealousy of Diana's stardom that we just heard about from Ken? Or does this story tell us more about his strengths, his determination and commitment to one woman, in spite of all the obstacles? Because, remember, it's now the other woman, the one who seems to make him truly happy, Camilla, who will be his queen. In 1999, 17 months after Diana's death, Charles and Camilla make their first appearance in public together, as a couple. The press had been tipped off about the appearance and photographers lined the streets in front of the Ritz Hotel in London, waiting for the photo op that they and the couple had waited for for years. It was just like the old days, only the focus of the photographers wasn't Diana, but Camilla. Prince Charles and his longtime lover finally faced the public together. It was the first time the two had been photographed together since 1979. It was a shot no paparazzi could ignore. Fine, if he wants to be with Camilla, I don't see any reason why not. She seems like You could that. say this was the moment Charles finally took charge. His whole life had been in the public eye, 
but he was no longer willing to bow to public opinion. Charles and Camilla's coming out was the product of a years-long PR campaign on the part of the prince. Beginning back in 1996, Charles had gotten to work to rehabilitate Camilla's image in the wake of his scandalous and messy divorce. The Camilla project has been topic A for him since, you know, the late 90s, since before Diana's death, since his own divorce. Much of his sort of energies has been spent to the rehabilitation of Camilla's reputation. Seems like Charles and Camilla have basically lived almost half their lives waiting to be fully accepted as a couple. But there was even another hurdle. Charles and Camilla are both divorced. And history tells us that divorce is a big sticking point in the British royal family, who have been quite rigid with family members who venture down this path. When the Queen's uncle, King Edward VIII, fell in love with a divorcee, he left the royal family entirely, abdicating his role as king and causing a crisis. And as the story goes, bound by these same traditions, the Queen herself refused to give her formal approval for her sister's marriage to a divorced man. So it's fair to say the Camilla project had a steep hill to climb. It's been inch by inch that he's brought her out and has had, you know, appearing with her more various public occasions where she was introduced at his side, persuading the Queen to accept her, which took a long time in terms of recognising her in public, which she wouldn't do. I mean, Charles's 50th birthday, Camilla wasn't even invited because it was the Queen's event and there's no way she was going to have Camilla there. So you see how inch by inch by inch it's been about rehabbing Camilla's persona. Charles's slow but steady approach did eventually work. In 2004, the couple got engaged and on April 9th, 2005, Charles and Camilla tied the knot. Live from Windsor today, for years, Charles and Camilla lived love in the shadows. Today, they became man and wife. Turns out it actually isn't only Diana who's changed the royal family. It's Charles, too. And Camilla. I mean, the amazing thing about Camilla is that she has said not a word. We don't know a thing that Camilla thinks about anything. And that has certainly endeared her to the Queen. Stoicism and discretion. My God, those are the two things the Queen values more than anything. And Camilla has shown both. What an extraordinary thing that, by your account, the Queen has come to realise that Camilla is everything that she would hope for. Right. In... How ironic. How ironic. ironic. She has been so much better for Charles than anyone else could have been. I mean, supportive and stalwart and humorous and patient. I mean... She's made him into such a much better man, is the truth. And the kind of person that the Queen likes. The, the, the Queen actually sees the values. And, you know, frankly, shares all the same interests as the rest of the Windsors do. Loves horses and dogs and country life. And, you know, that's what they love to talk about and what they love to do. So it's really quite ironic. And the Queen really has come to see that. So it's a very interesting thing that... Um, the accepting of Camilla, uh, it, it's, a, it's a sort of first in the sense of saying more important than anything is character. And Camilla has shown character. What is uh, Charles and Camilla's life like now then behind closed doors? Do we know? I mean, they're very rarely apart, actually, because uh, they are so close. And Charles wants her to be on tour with him because she she makes him laugh and she stops him from being lonely. So they actually are 
a very close couple who do spend a great deal of time together. But Camilla has has kept her own house from uh, her past life, where she likes to go and sort of put her feet up, relax, smoke up the chimney because Charles hates anyone who smokes and she secretly still does. So she likes to go and smoke well, not, up the chimney. It's not a secret anymore, Tina. You know? I know. I know. There you are. I've blown it for Camilla. I hope Charles <laughs> isn't listening. <laughs> for the record, the Prince of Wales website addressed whether or not Camilla is still a smoker. Their site reads, question, and I quote, are the reports that the Duchess is still a smoker true? And answer, quote, no, the Duchess of Cornwall gave up smoking many years ago. You know, Camilla's a very relaxed, funny woman. She likes to drink. She likes to put her feet up on the couch and roar with laughter and sort of have fun. And You know, so she likes to go home to her own home um, and do that sometimes, you know, and I think she probably loves to escape from the uh, eavesdropping servants and the kind of stuffiness around her that inevitably comes from being married to the Prince of Wales. So she does have that little outlet for herself. That is a that is another level uh, beyond separate bedrooms, separate houses. Yes, your indeed. own house that you can retreat to when you want. Exactly, that would be good for any marriage. I, I would, oh my I god, you, you said it. It's a lovely house. <laughs> <laughs> is it when he's king? Does he consult Camilla? consistently. I don't think there's very much that he doesn't discuss with Camilla. She's also very intelligent and very intuitive and a very good counsellor. So I think that Charles will talk about a lot with Camilla and uh, she will be right in there in the same way that the Queen Mother was. I mean, the Queen Mother used to attend uh, working suppers with Winston Churchill, with George VI during the war and so on. I think you'll find that Camilla is very much privy to everything that's going on. Tina thinks that Camilla is such a pillar in Charles's life that if he hadn't been allowed to marry her, it's possible he may have turned his back on the crown altogether. His view was, if I can't have Camilla, I don't want anything. Very much as it was for his great uncle, Edward VIII, who chose to abdicate uh, and marry Wallace Simpson, because without Wallace Simpson, he didn't want to be king. Uh, I think that if it had come to it, I think if Charles had been told, okay. It's either be king or have Camilla. He would have chosen Camilla. He loved this woman. He needed her. He felt he couldn't live without her. Fortunately for him, the queen eventually, eventually, <laughs> I mean decades, uh, accepted that Camilla wasn't going away and uh, allowed him to marry her. Once he was married to her, the pathway was set for the recent announcement of the queen that Camilla will be allowed to be called queen when he ascends the throne. For many years, there had been a lot of speculation. Oh, you know, Camilla will have to be called, uh, you know, sort of keep her title Duchess of Cornwall. You know, a uh, lot, lot of people have, have argued that, you know, she would never have the title of queen. But no, the queen has given it her blessing, which was really her version of, of estate planning. You know, she was saying, I'm going to clean this up now so that Charles can have Camilla as his queen because, frankly, she's, she's earned it and so has he. So Charles has at long last ensured the place and reputation of his big love, Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, and one day, Queen Consort. But has he put the past behind him? All of us have aspects of our history we're not proud of, but not all of us are going to be king one day. Princess Diana herself, in her famous interview, questioned whether Prince Charles would, quote, adapt to the, quote, top job. There are mixed stories about whether she regretted those comments or not, but it's more than whether he can do the job or the tabloid scandals from his personal life hanging over him. 
there are other scandals he's had to overcome. Will they come back to haunt him when he's king? The Metropolitan Police have launched an investigation into Prince Charles' charity. Prince Andrew may have hoped to answer the burning questions about his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. Instead, he's poured gas on the flames. Oprah's bombshell interview with Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan. The question is, how will the royal family react? Can he survive this latest scandal? That's next time on Born to Rule. Just a note to end our episode, we did reach out to the palace and they did not respond. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please give Born to Rule When Charles is King a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Born to Rule is produced by Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Lacey Roberts. Associate producers are Rachel Young and Nina Bispano. Ernie Indrida is our audio engineer. Original music by John Estes and additional music by Brian Robertson and MJ Hancock. Production help by Bob Mallory and associate producer Arnav Jain. Kiko Itasaka and Carol Marquis are our coordinating producers. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Mina Kothoria is our executive producer. Reed Cherlin is managing editor. Soraya Gage, general manager. And Madeline Harringer, our head of editorial.